Lord, that declares us holy, that declares us righteous. Lord, you you look at us and you, you don't see our blemishes. You see your son and his love covering us. And God, I'm grateful for that. Thank you, Jesus, that um, this isn't about how good I can be, but about how good you are. And so I pray that in all of our hearts that we would recognize your love for us. Jesus, that we would not lose sight of the cross as we contemplate the manger. That this was all part of one big mission. You didn't come on a flying horse or you didn't come with fire or with storm or wind. Jesus, you, you came in a quiet way. Lord, you stepped into the world and, and I just, I'm, I'm grateful that you're a humble king. Everything is yours and you were born in the midst of controversy. You were born in a cave, in a manger. Jesus, you did all that for me. I pray that you'd help us to, to hear these, these stories. They're not stories, but these people that, that encountered you. And, and I pray that you'd help us to understand where we fit in that story. Jesus, as we contemplate our own response to what you're doing in our lives, and sometimes just what's happening in our lives, and we don't know, is, is God doing this or is this just happening? Jesus, I just pray that you'd help us to hear with open hearts and open minds today. Jesus, we love you so much. Pray that you would uh, bless us as we hear your word. In Jesus' name. All right, before Roy plays the the bumper video for this morning, I want to introduce us to a new attender here at North Hills, who is not many days older than Jesus would have been when the shepherds went to to see him. Uh, his name is Owen. Gene, I remembered his middle name, don't know how, Owen Gene, uh, Carmen, and he was born to Jason Stacy Carmen just a few days ago. So uh, do the Lion King thing there, Jace or Stacy, and show us somebody, somebody said this morning, he's so little. Stacy was glad he was so little. Um, so let's uh Sweetie, are you listening? Mary, I've said it once, but I'll say it again. I can do two things. Two things at once, yes, I know. Uh but we really need to talk. And Joseph, yeah. I need you to listen. I'm listening so hard right now. I, you can't even imagine how much I'm I'm concentrating on on you and words. I'm overwhelmed by your concentration. Can you can you just stop for a second, please? Mary, I would love to stop for a second, but I can't. Why not? We're gonna be married soon, and I just I just want everything to be perfect. Joseph, I love your heart. I really do, but you know, not everything has to be perfect, and that's okay because we don't know what life is going to throw at us, you know? Right, but I, I still want a house worthy of you, and, and, and to do that, I, I, I've got to work because a man's... man has got to have a plan. Have I mentioned that before? A time or two. 
Mary, I have so many plans for us. The table? This is where we're going to have our meals together. And, and, and I've made it big enough for, for to seat some little ones. For down the road, of course. About that. Where did I put that chisel? Joseph, I need to tell you something. Something... Something unbelievable. Did I put it in that shelf? I was visited by... By an angel. Yeah? And he told me that I was highly favored. Mm-hmm. And it all felt... It felt like a dream until he... He told me something. And the instant he said it, I knew that it was true. I just used to that. I just had it. Joseph, are you listening to me? That, that sounds really great. Joseph. Got it. I'm pregnant. I mean, we know that the truth that's in the Bible happened, that it's historically occurred. And although we're not given this exact situation, we know that this conversation happened. Try to put yourself in Mary and Joseph's shoes. <laughs> what emotions must Joseph be when he hears the words, I'm pregnant? What, uh, what questions raced through his mind at that moment? How do you think Mary must have felt as she was trying to conjure up the, the strength and the courage to tell Joseph about this that has been told to her? I wonder if, if Mary hadn't sort of rehearsed this conversation over and over and over again for the last day or two or for the last few hours. Maybe like the, uh, like the prodigal son who, having squandered the wealth that he wished his dad dead for, and finally, the Bible says, came to his senses and, and was on his way to tell his dad and, and to, to seek his forgiveness and, and was practicing this, this, this apology that he was going to give to his father. And, and we know that in that story that when he comes to his father, that, that even before he could get a few words out of his mouth. His, his dad throws his arms around him and he embraces him. And that, That's what I want for this story. That's what I want Joseph to do. But what does he do? What does Mary do? I want Joseph to put down his tools to turn off the football game. And listen to what I have to tell you. And then to embrace it. Embrace this message which Mary is, is now bringing to you. Now we don't know what happened at 
that moment only that it must have occurred? Joseph was a righteous man, it says, and even righteous men and women can struggle with what God is doing in their life and how he's doing it. We don't like it, or it's not happening fast enough for us, or, or something that God is doing in our life, our friends are being mean-spirited about it. I mean, we've experienced things like that, where we're trusting, or we're having faith, yet those on the outside don't see it, and they just, you know, they rush to judgment or rush to ridicule. Those things happened in the lives of Joseph and Mary, I'm sure. I mean, we've got to realize here this morning as we sit here that that these are confusing times for Joseph and Mary. I mean, the the gamut of emotions and circumstances that are going to surround their lives for the next nine months, a year, years. Why? Why would God impose that on such a young, righteous, highly favored couple? I mean... You think about this conversation and you think, wow, wow, that's kind of unfair, right? God is asking them to do this and to be this, to, to get through this, what may seem to them impossible situation. I, I bet you are in or have been in a situation where you thought it was impossible. There's no positive outcome that could ever come from this. Maybe there's been a betrayal in a marriage. Maybe there's been a disease that you're fighting. Or maybe maybe there's a disease that you're fighting because of decisions that you made earlier in your life. Or maybe other people are making decisions and it's creating circumstances in your own life that just seem impossible and you want to cry out, this is unfair, God, why? And I'm sure Joseph and Mary had some of those same thoughts. Now, we're not given the whole story. We're not given all of the details in how Mary told Joseph and what that conversation looked like. We don't get that. We uh, we do get the perspective from 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 Joseph and from Mary and they're in two different gospels. So if you would turn to 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 Luke, actually we'll start in Luke, Luke chapter 1. And let's look at how Mary found out that she was pregnant. Uh, Now again, I want to remind you that these are real people. Like you and me. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary, the angel went to her and said, Greetings you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now remember, or look at this, it says the God sent the angel Gabriel. This is an archangel appearing before Mary here. Okay? Positive message, scary messenger. And it says in verse 29 that Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting that this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. 
He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her four observations from our two characters, from our two uh, members of our story today. The first one is this. God's ways are not our ways. Are they? <laughs> not even close. Now, some of you can probably quote Beatles lyrics as easily as you can quote the Christmas story. When we hear Paul McCartney singing, let it be, let it be, let it be. Or, or what we, we think with that is leave it alone, right? Don't stress, don't worry, just, just let it be. You know, that's what Mary does. She makes a decision to accept what's coming, however frightening it might be. Look at her response. She says, May it be to me as you have said. What trust? What faith? All of these thoughts and emotions are flying through her mind, and as they are, she makes the decision, the willful decision to say, you know what? God said it, may it be so. She says, okay. Oh, may we approach God that way. I've often asked the question, why would God work this way? Why would God put this young couple in this position? Why would he ask this of them? Doesn't it seem unfair? Doesn't it seem like this is, this is too much? What's our point? Oh yeah, God's ways are not our ways. He does things that we can't understand. He does things that put us in tough spots. He, put us, he, he does things and He calls on us to do things that are outside of our comfort zone. That may, that may call the world in to ridicule us. He says, this is what I want you to do. This is what it's going to be. And Mary says, may it be. We need to be reminded that God's ways are not our ways. You know, he sees the whole picture. He's working and has been working for hundreds and hundreds of years leading up to this very moment in history. And when this moment in history happened, he didn't stop working. He continues to work today. He's been hundreds and hundreds of years before you were born. He has been working, I believe, on your behalf. On his behalf, in your past, and in your, essentially, future. I guess it would be. See, God is that big. 
God is that big. Now, there are a total of 80 verses found in Luke chapter 1, and there is nary a clue about how and when Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant. We don't see it in the book of Luke. In fact, um, what we have even in the book of Matthew, if you flip over to the book of Matthew, and you look at verse 18, this is it right here. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about, Matthew writes. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. That's it. We do, however, get lots of information about Joseph's response to this. Mary's response was one of resolve. Okay, Lord, you're asking me to do this. May it be so. Joseph's response, however, was a typical man. He processes the news. He looks at the facts. And he, he makes a decision. He makes a decision and he, he says in his mind, okay, now this is how I'm going to respond to this situation. Look at verse, um, continuing in verse 18. She was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit, verse 19, because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. Okay, decision made. This is his response. Now, they're not married yet. Some would ask the question, why, why would there need to be a divorce? Well, maybe. Um, you know, I just need to explain to you a little bit about the uh, Jewish custom of betrothal. Matthew one eighteen and Luke one twenty seven specify that Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Okay, the Jewish custom of betrothal signified a great deal more than what we would call an engagement. It's not the same. Uh, for one thing, uh, the marriage hasn't been arranged, and typically in Jewish culture and and this century. Most marriages were arranged. Husband and wife didn't really have much say in it. Sometimes I think that'd be a great idea to do today. You know, right? We've all picked out that perfect man or woman for our children. That one we think, yeah, that would be great. But again, I kind of have to remind myself I'd probably just screw it up. Because God knows a whole lot more about that person than I do. Anyway, um, so instead of an engagement and then a marriage, there is uh, this, this part one of, of a two-part marriage process includes both the kedushin, or kedushin, which is the betrothal, and the hopa, which is the actual marriage ceremony. Uh, the betrothal actually begins when a contract is made and sealed by payment of what was known as the mohar. So the contract, which is made between the father of the bride and the father of the soon-to-be husband, is considered binding as soon as it is made. And the man and the woman are considered legally married, though they don't live that way. Their marriage ceremony has not happened yet, and the consummation of the marriage does not occur until sometimes even more than a year after 
the first part. Now, according to Jewish custom, Joseph or his family would have paid Mary's mother or Mary's father a mohar, a bride price, which would have helped with the upcoming marriage ceremony expenses in the future while immediately beginning their marriage as husband and wife the moment the agreement was made. It's a time of testing. A time of testing of fidelity, I've read. And the hupa, the final ceremony, brings the family together and it's followed by the consummation of the marriage, which we would call the honeymoon. Now, Mary becomes pregnant during during the betrothal period. And under normal circumstances would have brought immense shame on her and Joseph as well as both of their families. Now, most on the outside looking in would say this is normal circumstances. Of course, we look back at it and say, well, we know more to the story, right? But yet, sometimes we don't pause enough to consider and think about the position that Mary and Joseph were in, in what God was doing in the world. God's ways are certainly not our ways. So Mary becomes pregnant. But we're told that it's not because of violation of her betrothal fidelity. In Luke 1.34, you can see it right there. Mary asks this question. Now, Zechariah asked a question, right? When the angel told him that his wife was going to become become pregnant and, and Zachariah got nine months of being a mute. Okay? Because his question was a question of disbelief. Um, Mary's question, obviously, in the way that the angel answers, was simply a question of fact. How can I have a child since I am a virgin? How is this possible? Look at verse 20. We have the response of Joseph. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. What is it about dreams in the Bible? Right? I mean, um, that are different than regular dreams. I'm sure people in those days dreamt the same way that we do today. I'm sure little Hebrew boys had dreams about showing up to Hebrew class one day and lo and behold, there was a Hebrew final and they hadn't studied for it. Anybody ever have one of those dreams? Or, or they, get their, they get their transcript at the end of a semester and they find out that they signed up for a class that they never went to. They got a big zero. Anybody ever have one of those dreams? You ever have one of those dreams where, like maybe a Hebrew person would, they're, they're wandering about the marketplace haggling over the price of fish and suddenly they realize that they forgot to put their clothes on that morning? I mean, this is not one of those kinds of dreams. This, this is a dream where Joseph wakes up and he's like, okay, God spoke to me in this dream. And what does he do? 
He wraps his arms around Mary. He says, we can do this. And we are going to do this. This divorce talk, this reasonable response, even in his righteousness and in the kindness of his heart, seeking to do this quietly. See, he had every right to shame Mary. If, if her pregnancy was due to infidelity, which, come on, Mary, really? An angel told you this? Who's the guy? No. No, Joseph, I'm telling you the truth. An angel came to me and said this to me. And then, and then Joseph gets the same message in a dream. And, and he's like, oh, okay. It is from God after all. He takes Mary. Again, what an act of faith that is. What an act of trust. God, this is scary. I can only imagine things that people are going to say, people that, that people are going to do. And Joseph, if this was infidelity, had every right to, to divorce her quietly, to divorce her shamefully, or even to have her stoned in that day. But he did none of those things. Now we see both Luke and Matthew, in both Luke and Matthew, that, that, that Mary's pregnancy was from God. They both mention it. So that we may not be led astray. It, it, it wasn't from a misbehavior with a man before her wedding night. Which brings us to our second observation, and it comes from the angel's response to Mary's question. And it is this, Luke one thirty seven. For nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. I have met with couples who I prayed that, that the Lord would restore their relationship from an act of infidelity. And in the back of my head wondered if it's even possible, but, but in faith said, Lord, please. And he did. He did the impossible. He does the impossible every day. Every day. Every day you and I get up. <laughs> the older I get, the more harder that seems to get. We take a breath. We don't even think about breathing, and we do. See, every day we experience a miracle. Um, what some would say was chance that we evolved into what we are from a fish or whatever no no god did the impossible and he created us to be what we are nothing is impossible with god now joseph knew that this child in mary's womb was not his matthew states in verse 18 that that Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Um, when Joseph wakes up from this dream in verse 24 and 25 of Matthew chapter 1, he, he, 
He does what the angel of the Lord, he, it says he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. At this point in the relationship, when the betrothal was still underway, finding out Mary was pregnant could only mean one thing, right? Adultery. But Joseph hears from the Lord. And he becomes resolved, doesn't he? You know what? This thing that is impossible, this thing that Mary said, she's telling me the truth, she has never had sex with another man. She is still a virgin. Yet, she's carrying a son. Joseph, in his mind, in his resolve at this point, trusting the Lord says, Nothing is impossible with God. In fact, what, what the angel announced to Joseph made all the difference in the world to him. Matthew 1, 20 and 21, you can see there that after Joseph considered this and the angel came to him, the angel says, Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Could you imagine getting that news? I mean, it's one thing to be Zachariah and Elizabeth and hear that your son is just going to proclaim the coming of the Messiah. It's a whole other deal, isn't it? To hear that you are going to be the family that brings God into the world. It, it just it just it baffles the mind, doesn't it? Who who would even think up something like this, right? We would never, as human beings, we could never come up with a story this crazy and wild. God certainly did. And 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 I I, I mention this often, but this angel tells Mary and Joseph to not be afraid. Get the picture of, of, of little naked babies with wings and hearts flitting about the sky out of your head when it comes to angels. Because it's not true. This, the, the, the angel that came to Mary, for one, is the angel Gabriel, right? An archangel. An angel of angels. What must that be like? I, I mean... Cherubim and seraphim were, were more like something out of the Game of Thrones with flaming swords than anything else. Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, Zachariah all had reasons to be afraid, yet somehow they weren't. Now, just imagine if Zechariah hadn't listened. And, and he had made his own decisions. Perhaps the destiny of his son John would have been different if the shepherds had not obeyed and went immediately and then began to proclaim. I wonder what life would have been like in that first year of, of Israel. They wouldn't have been the first evangelist if Joseph had not obeyed and instead chose to, to let fear be his guide. But instead of letting fear be their guide, they trusted in the Lord despite the circumstances that they were in. If Mary had not obeyed and instead had chosen to let fear be her guide, perhaps 
she would have stayed with her cousin Elizabeth and given birth near to her nephew John in his home, not in Bethlehem, as the prophecy had said. I don't know. But I do know this, that the immediate obedience of these people in the Christmas events all led to the fulfillment of God's sovereign action in the world. And I think it's true for us too. God is not acting any less sovereignly in our world today than he did back then. And when we obey, when we trust, when we say, may it be so in our life, God uses us and we submit ourselves to how he intends to use us. And that's a positive thing. There was plenty to be afraid of in these events. Yet even when we don't understand, we don't have to be afraid, do we? That's my third observation. Even when we don't understand, we don't have to be afraid. I was having a conversation with a young lady last week. And I, I'd met her once and, and, you know, just an ongoing conversation uh, online. And... Uh, She's from Portland. She recently visited out here. And last week I found out that the reason she was visiting this time was because her dad died and she was here for the funeral. And, and I, just in, you know, my assumption is that she's not a believer. So being an acquaintance, I just kind of became a pastor to her. And, and in the midst of this, of this message to her, I said, you know, I may be overstepping my bounds. Please let me know if I am. But, and, and, I, and I went through some things that I would normally tell a person who's going through grief. And, and, and her response in the midst of this conversation was, there, things are just so confusing. And I thought to myself, no, they're not. No, your dad died because sin entered the world because of our selfishness and our world is in a constant state of, of, of breaking down. And, and even in the midst of this hard and difficult time, there's hope and there's joy and there's peace because there is someone way greater who came to save us than this present circumstance. And my prayer is that I can have an ongoing conversation with her about Jesus Christ. But what the last thing I said was, please, please remember that we're celebrating a season right now of the one who brings peace and joy in life and in death. You see, in Christ... If she were in Christ, she wouldn't need to be confused. If she were in Christ, she wouldn't have to be afraid. And we need to remember that here this morning as well. Matthew then reminds us of the meaning of the name of Emmanuel, God who is with us. He is Jesus the God who saves us, and He is with us all the days of our lives. He will never leave us nor forsake us. We've got to remember that. In fact, the last words that Jesus eventually would say to His disciples before ascending into heaven would be a reminder and an echo of His own name. Emmanuel. Matthew twenty-eight twenty says, And surely, and behold, Jesus says, I am with you always to the very end of the age 
That's my fourth observation. Jesus is with us always. Even when we hear of hard things in life. Even when we think we're in a situation or somebody else is in a situation that is impossible. We can trust the Lord because He can do the impossible. You see, God's ways are not our ways. Praise the Lord. We don't have to be afraid. God is with us. Nothing is impossible for Him. And He is always with us. As we lead up to our celebration Christmas Eve, let's remember those things. You know, for some, Christmas is a pretty crummy time of year because it often reminds them of what they don't have or who they don't have. And that can be hard. But remember that there is still joy and there is still peace in life because of who Jesus is. Now I want to close this morning with something from a devotional that that I read in the last couple of weeks. It's, it's by Max Lucado. And I think it ties all of our observations together this morning. Some call him Sinterklaas, other Pierre Noel or Papa Noel. He's been known as Hoto, Hoti Osho, Sonerklaas, Father Christmas, Jelly Belly, and to most English speakers, Santa Claus. His original name was Nicholas, which means victorious. He was born in AD 280 in what is now Turkey. He was orphaned at age nine when his parents died of a plague. Though many would think Santa majored in toy making and minored in marketing, actually the original Nicholas studied Greek philosophy and Christian doctrine. He was honored by the Catholic Church by being named Bishop of Myra in the early 4th century. He held the post until his death on December 6, 343. History recognized him as a saint, but in the 3rd century he was a bit of a troublemaker. He was twice jailed, once by the Emperor Diocletian for religious reasons, the other for slugging a fellow bishop during a fiery debate. So much for finding out who's naughty and nice, right? Old Nick never married, but that's not to say he wasn't a romantic. He was best known for the kindness he showed to a poor neighbor who was unable to support his three daughters or provide the customary dowry so they could attract husbands. Old St. Nicholas slipped up to the house by night and dropped a handful of gold coins through the window so the eldest daughter could afford to get married. He repeated this act two other nights for the other two daughters. This story was the seed that watered with years became the Santa legend. It seems that every generation adorned it with another ornament until it sparkled more than a Christmas tree. The gift grew from a handful of coins to bags of coins. Instead of dropping them through the window, he dropped them through the chimney. And rather than land on the floor, the bags of coins landed in the girl's stockings, which were hanging on the hearth to dry. So that's where that stocking stuff came from. The centuries have been as good to Nicholas's image as to his deeds. Not only has his acts been embellished, his wardrobe has 
uh, and personality have undergone transformations as well. As Bishop of Myra, he wore the traditional ecclesiastical robes and a mitered hat. He is known to have been slim with a dark beard and a serious personality. By 1300, he was wearing a white beard. By the 1800s, he was depicted with a round belly and an ever-present basket of food over his arm. Soon after, the black boots, a red cape, and a cheery stocking on his head. In the late 19th century, his basket of food became a sack of toys. In 1866, he was small and gnomish, but by 1930, he was a robust six-footer with rosy cheeks and a Coca-Cola. Santa reflects the desires of people all over the world. With the centuries, he has become the composite of what we want. A friend who cares enough to travel a long way against all odds to bring good gifts to good people. A sage who, though aware of each act, has a way of rewarding the good and overlooking the bad. A friend of children who never gets sick and never grows old. A father who lets you sit on his lap and share your deepest desires. Santa, the culmination of what we need in a hero, the personification of our passions, the expression of our yearnings, the fulfillment of our desires, and the betrayal of our meager expectations. What, you say? Let me explain. You see, Santa can't provide what we really need. For one thing, he's only around once a year. When January winds fill our souls, he's history. When December's requests become February payments, Santa's left them all. When April demands taxes or May brings final exams, Santa is still months from his next visit. And should July find us ill or October find us alone, he can't go to his chair for com- we can't go to his chair for comfort. It's still empty. Empty. He only comes once a year. And when he comes, though he gives much, he doesn't take away much. He doesn't take away the riddle of the grave, the burden of mistakes, or the anxiety of demands. He's kind and quick and cute. But when it comes to healing hurts, don't go to Santa. Now, I don't mean to be a Scrooge. I'm not wanting to slam the jolly old fellow. I'm just pointing out that we people are timid when it comes to designing legends. You'd think we could do better. You'd think that over six centuries we'd develop a hero who'd resolve those fears. But we can't. We have made many heroes from King Arthur to Kennedy, Lincoln to Lindbergh, Socrates to Santa to Superman. We give it the best we can, every benefit of every doubt, every supernatural strength, and for a brief, shining moment, we have the hero we need, the king who can deliver Camelot. But then the truth leaks. And fact surfaces amid the fiction, and the chinks in the armor are seen, and we realize that the heroes, as noble as they may have been, as courageous as they were, were conceived in the same stained society as you and I. Except one. There was one who claimed to come from a different place. There was one who, though he had the appearance of a man, claimed to have the origin of God. There was one who, while wearing the face of a Jew, had the image of the Creator. Those who saw him, those who really saw him, knew there was something different. At his touch, blind beggars saw. At his command, crippled legs walked. At his embrace, empty lives filled with vision. He fed thousands with one basket. He stilled a storm with one command. He raised the dead with one proclamation. He changed lives with one request. He rerouted the history of the world with one life, lived in one country, was born in one manger, and died on one hill. 
After three years of ministry, hundreds of miles, thousands of miracles, innumerable teachings, Jesus asks, Who? Jesus bids the people to ponder not what He has done, but who He is. It's the ultimate question of the Christ. Whose son is he? Is he the son of God or the sum of our dreams? Is he the force of creation or a figment of our imagination? When we ask that question about Santa, the answer is the culmination of our desires, a depiction of our fondest dreams. Not so when we ask it about Jesus. For no one could ever dream a person as incredible as he is. The idea that a virgin would be selected by God to bear himself, the notion that God would don a scalp and toes and two eyes, the thought that the king of the universe would sneeze and burp and get bit by mosquitoes, it's too incredible. Too revolutionary. We would never create such a savior. We aren't that daring. When we create a Redeemer, we keep, him safe. we keep Him safely distant in His faraway castle. We allow Him only the briefest of encounters with us. We permit Him to swoop in and out with His clay before we can draw too near. We wouldn't ask Him to take up residence in the midst of a contaminated people. In our wildest imaginings, we wouldn't conjure a king who becomes one of us. But God did. But God did. God did what we wouldn't dare dream. He did what we couldn't imagine. He became a man so we could trust him. He became a sacrifice so we could know him. And he defeated death so we could follow him. It defies logic. It is a divine insanity. A holy incredibility. Only a God beyond systems and common sense could create a plan as absurd as this. Yet, it is the very impossibility of it all that makes it possible. The wilderness of the story is its strongest. The wildness of the story is its strongest witness. For only a God could create a plan this mad. Only a creator beyond the fierce and fence of logic could offer such a gift of love. You see, what man can't do, God does. He doesn't work the way we want him to. We don't have to be afraid. We can completely and fully trust him. And we need to remember as we sing this last song and take up the offering that He's with you right now. He'll never leave you. He made a promise. And as we see in the events of the Christmas story, He does what He says He's going to do.